So just a word for the young ones of us, young at heart, young in age, doesn't matter. Uh, I have to tell you a secret and don't tell anybody this secret, okay? Um, but sometimes when I'm at the church in the middle of the week, I'm the only one here. And then when I finish my work or I want to take a break from my work, guess what I do? That's my secret. I go snooping. <laughs> I look in drawers. I look in closets. I look at everything that we have in this church. And one of my favorite places, and I'll admit this only now for the first time to Pastor Tom, I like to go up to the organ loft because <laughs> I like to look at the pipes. I love this organ we have in the church. It's so beautiful. And there is all kinds of interesting stuff up there, like music and music stands. And it makes me remember when the Recorders Society would play for us and when we had other instruments up there. And so, but I like to go up there and snoop. And then yesterday, I was doing a little snooping you know, in the pastor's office, we keep all of the historical records of the church. We, we call them the archives. And I pulled this out because I think it's fascinating. See, Christ Church Lutheran. I don't know if you can see that very well. You probably can't. But Christ Church Lutheran was founded in... 1913 so we're over a hundred years old wow and this is the constitution and bylaws that they made in 1927 and as i read through this i thought you know some things have really changed a lot like um there are no women's signatures on this constitution just men because women weren't allowed to vote in the church back then, and now they can. So that's a good change. But then some things are just pretty plain and simple. They never change, right? Like what the president of the congregation does, what the vice president does, and that kind of thing. But I found it fascinating. So I wanted to share this with you and say, you know, someday, uh, maybe if you want a tour of the Organ Loft, you ask Pastor Tom, he'll show you all around. If you want to look at the archives in the pastor's office, you just ask because they're there. And then also yesterday, uh, because I wasn't the only one here yesterday, Marilyn Ship was here yesterday, and she cleaned all the silver. She polished all the brass so our candle holders look beautiful, our cross looks beautiful. And while she was working hard, I decided that I would go snoop in the sacristy. <laughs> so that's where all of the altar guild people do all their work. And I found such very interesting things. Let me show you. So I found an old box of twist and tie. <laughs> um, 
and I didn't even know what they were. But the box says that when you're arranging flowers and if the flower doesn't stand up right, you can tie it to a stake and then it looks pretty. Yeah. So I found this. I found some metal polish because, again, uh, the Alter Guild polishes things all the time. And then my eye caught this. So I don't know. You can see this very well. It's like this lacy thing. And I thought, well, how pretty is that? And then I opened it up and it actually goes in front of the altar, I guess, on Easter. And it has a cross on it and it has a flower underneath it, a lily. And the cross is empty because on Easter we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, so he's not on the cross. And then there are these, um, can you see them? There's like a white, um, yeah, like white lace on piece the of material looped over the cross. And it kind of reminds us of the gospel lesson today when, you know, the women went into the tomb and Jesus was gone, but all of the grave clothes were there still. And um, it just... This made me remember the, uh, the story of the resurrection of Jesus. But it also made me remember one other thing. Um, do you remember that over a year ago, we hid something in the church? Hmm. Does this remind you what we hid? We did the Alleluia thing. We did. <laughs> so I thought, you know, the we big better Alleluia get that song. out of the baptismal font and unroll it for Easter. So now we have our banner that's been in the baptismal font way too long. We now can pull it out because this is the day that we can say what word again? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And we're going to say it loud. We're going to say it strong. We're going to sing it. We're going to pray it. We're going to do everything we can to let the world know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen and hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. And that's my thought for you today. I've made quite a mess here with all this stuff. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Should we practice? Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Christ is risen indeed. Indeed, our Christ is risen. And once again, we come with joy and thanksgiving. We're going to say Hallelujah. We're going to sing Hallelujah. We're going to praise God as much as we can today and hopefully the rest of our lives for the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. But did you pay attention to the reading of the gospel from Mark and note that 
There wasn't a lot of joy or alleluia speaking in that gospel lesson. This is one of the characteristics that makes Mark's gospel quite different from the other stories of the resurrection in the New Testament, where the other gospel writers highlight the joy and the excitement of that first Easter morning. Mark leaves the women running away for trembling and astonishment had seized them. It's quite a different view of the story. And yet, perhaps it's just what we need to hear this morning. Perhaps we need to hear from Mark that trembling and astonishment had seized these women. Trembling and astonishment. Not words that sound very joyful, but let's see if we can figure out why Mark ends the Easter story this way and what it might mean for us. We must start by listening in on the women as they make their way in the early morning to the tomb. Mark gives us remarkable detail. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? The women are already worried. Maybe they should have thought about this before they set their alarms to get up so early. Maybe they should have made better plans for what their process would be. Now, all they can do is worry. And so that's what they do. They worry. Of course, anyone who has ever gone through a tragic loss knows that worry is sometimes a defense mechanism. So when a loved one dies, we worry about the little things, like who's gonna prepare the food for the funeral. When a job is lost, we worry about how we're gonna send our two-year-old to college. So often worrying about very concrete details is a way of distracting ourselves from a situation that we can't really quite deal with in the moment. But these worrying women reach the tomb and what do they find there? The stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe and he said to them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's been raised, he is not here. Now, the first response of the women, our text says, is trembling. That's not an unexpected thing when we stand before the mystery of God. A favorite Holy Week hymn even has that line, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. One may tremble with fear, of course, but one may also tremble with joy or with anticipation, or one may simply tremble in the face of something that someone doesn't understand fully or expect 
fully. And I think that's what's happening here with these women. They tremble because they suddenly see that their worries have totally missed the point, even missed it by a mile, we might say. They have worried about moving a stone, but the stone is already gone. They worried about their dead friend, the end of their hopes and dreams, but death too is gone because now Christ is risen. Their worries have kept them from seeing the remarkable truth, namely that he was going to rise and he was going on before them just as he had told you. The truth was there all along. Jesus had told them all along what would happen, but their eyes had been on their worries and not on what God was saying or what God was doing. I had a conversation with one of my pastor colleagues the other day. Are you ready for Easter? I asked and she said, well, no, I'm not ready, but I'm excited. I'm excited to see God, uh, to see who God might bring to worship on Easter Sunday morning. And I thought to myself, what a fine and lovely and faithful response. It's too easy sometimes for pastors to get focused on all the things that make up Easter worship. Is it going to rain? Will attendance be as high as it was last year? Will Zoom fade out or the internet last or the candles go out or somebody press a button in the wrong spot, you know? Um, we focus so much on the things that we worry about that we might well miss what God is actually doing. And what God is actually doing is oftentimes, well, most often, something totally unexpected, at least to us who take refuge in our weariness. Worry, after all, is refusing to trust God, isn't it? It's failing to believe what Christ said. The Augsburg Confession tells us that the Holy Spirit works faith when and where it will. But so often we are convinced that our faith, our life, our whole relationship with God, the whole success of the whole church depends on us. And that if we don't do this or do that, everything is going to go down the tubes. The women came to the tomb thinking about all the things that they simply must do. But the message they hear is to trust God to do what must be done. And God will do it just as promised. Their real task, and ours too, is to trust and to open our eyes and see what God is doing in us and for us and among us. If we can do that, it's a lovely Easter. Then Mark says that the women were filled with astonishment. That's another word that only Mark uses in his Easter story. 
Of course, one can understand why anybody would be astonished, but let's look at the word a little more deeply. I suspect that the astonishment is more than just a surprise for them as to what had happened. I think it has something to do with maybe the sudden realization that everything that Jesus had been teaching, everything that he'd been saying, everything that he was all about was true, not just ideas, but really true. And again, one key is that phrase in the gospel reading today, just as he told you. The women, like the other disciples, have not really fully quite believed it. Throughout the story of Jesus' ministry, we have seen his followers stumbling along, trying their best to believe the good news, but not ever quite making it, consistently missing the point. But now the women believe. They finally get it. Another clue is the, is the special instruction about Peter, because the man in the white robe said, go tell his disciples and Peter. Remember, Peter was the one disciple who denied him three times, the one who wept bitterly over his own failing. If there was ever someone who felt like he had committed the unpardonable sin, I'm sure it was Peter. Sure, Jesus had talked a lot about forgiveness, but I'm thinking that Peter must have thought that he went a little too far by denying Jesus not once, but twice, and even three times. Would he ever be forgiven for what he had done? So the angel makes it clear, go tell the disciples and Peter, as if to say, tell Peter especially because he needs to hear it. He needs to know that he is forgiven. He needs to know. And of course, you need to know, and I need to know. We always need to know that God has done wonderful things, not so that God can boast, but because God loves us and forgiveness is ours and life in Christ is ours. Ernest Hemingway told the story of a Spanish father whose son Paco had run away from home. Do you know this story? Uh, the fathers suspected that Paco had run off to the big city of Madrid, and after searching unsuccessfully for him for a while, he took out an ad, like an advertisement in the local paper, and it read, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. When the father went to the hotel at noon on Tuesday, there were milling around the hotel some 800 young men, all named Paco, who had seen the ad and had come to be reconciled with their fathers. 
We all seek reconciliation, sometimes with our own parents, sometimes with friends, sometimes with God. So many of us are like Peter. We know that we have failed others. We know that we have failed Christ. We know that we have sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. We know that we're not worthy to be called children of God. And then we think if we ever were, and then we begin to worry again. But we gather this morning, not to the Hotel Montana, but we gather around an empty tomb. We come not by ourselves, but with these women and with Peter and with all who have a history of denying Christ, betraying Christ, ignoring Christ, not believing in Christ, all of us crowding around his tomb and then standing in utter amazement and astonishment as we realize that everything that Jesus has said is true. It is true. The resurrection is true. And certainly more than that, it is true that God loves us and we are forgiven and that Jesus goes before us and promises to meet us and be with us for all of eternity, just as he said. Trembling and astonishment. What other response can there be to a love so deep, so broad, so high, that Christ would do all this for us, that we may be Christ's own? Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.